of it. And now uh, today in chapter 12, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 12 and move on down through here. And I don't know that we'll get through everything today, but uh, we'll get as far as, as we can. Um, it says, verse 12, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make it straight paths for your feet, lest uh, that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Now, you can see how that this fits into um, uh, your life and my life. That's a good, I mean, that's, you can take that and use that. In fact, I got a little outline that sometime maybe you're going to get a, do a devotion for softball, volleyball. Uh, that'll probably never happen again, but you never know. Uh, take something like this just to show you. And it says, verse 12, lift up the hands which hang down and feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And I got a little three-point deal here, like if you were doing a little devotion. The first part would be to get right. The second part would be to get up. And the third part would be to get going. And, you know, you can just take a little thing like that and make an inspirational application out of it. We know, of course what we have here in the book of Hebrews and all through the book of Hebrews is, um, you know, is a picture of, of the nation of Israel and, and in their struggles. And Paul is trying to show them that, you know, there's something better in the New Testament that they're missing out on. And, you know, I told you when we started this book that uh, it's probably written very early, um, you know, probably maybe even the first thing that Paul wrote. Uh, and uh, given to the nation of Israel. And that's why he doesn't give it the, the credibility, so to speak, that he does his other ones until you get to the last chapter. And then it's no question about it that it's, uh, it's dealing with, with Paul. So when it says there, make straight, uh, excuse me, lift up your hands which hang down, that's certainly the nation of Israel, and feeble knees. Israel's walk with God uh, is a struggle at, at this particular point in time. When Paul's writing this to them, they've had the Messiah, you know, they have completely rejected it, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and the key word there, uh, let it rather be healed, and that's a key word for uh, when you find it. I'm not going to say every time you find it, but I'm going to say you'll want to watch it every time, because it usually deals with the nation of Israel uh, being healed. And you go back to Romans chapter 11 with that, and you see there in that great chapter, so then all Israel shall be saved, and it talks about them being healed. So it's a thing where, you know, when you find that word healed, uh, you want to you you pay attention to it. Obviously, you know, the signs and wonders, one of them is healing, are to the nation of Israel. So you always want to pay attention and look at that when you find that word. And then he says, uh, and make straight paths of your feet, uh, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. And, you know, the other, the other key word there would be the word lame. Uh, you can go back to look at, uh, <coughs> you know, uh, um, Asa, who has a disease in his feet, and, you know, in places like that. So you just, you just know going in from the book of Hebrews and what it does represent that it is basically dealing with the nation of Israel and everything that, that where they're at right now. And then he says, 
verse 15, look at diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Now, that is one of the greatest verses um, for you and for me anywhere you're going to find uh, anywhere in the Bible. And you've heard me You've heard me talk about bitterness before, and this is the definitive passage on it. Uh, It it says so much about it. But, you know, before we look at bitterness and getting into into your world and into your life, I want you to see what causes the root of bitterness. And this is where it begins to start, and it's found in verse 15. Uh, uh, Lest any man fail of the grace of God. That's where any problem in your life is going to start. We are told, um, we are told in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verse 10, that we are to be stewards of the grace of God, mo- mo- uh, manifold grace of God. And of course, a manifold is, is um, if you think of it, it, it's many different ways. You have a manifold on top of your car that the carburetor sits on, and it's got all kinds of different places where, you know, whatever is in your car goes to. Uh, but it's called a manifold because it, it's got different aspects of things, ways to, your gas or whatever can go in your engine. And so grace has different aspects to it. And um, when, we, when we are to be stewards of the manifold grace of God, then grace doesn't fail. And when grace fails, then that's when we have the problems that uh, we, we get into. And in this particular case here, He's talking about lest any root of bitterness spring up uh, to trouble you and thereby many be defiled. And, you know, probably with God's people, the biggest issue that uh, you're going to find when you start working with them is that people get bitter about things. And, uh, you know, uh, in all of, you've all worked with people, you know, we've seen them in our church, any church, not just ours, it's any place. You always get people to get their nose bent on a joint about something. And, and and that's okay. Everybody, I don't expect anybody not to have issues about things because that's just life in general. But it's when they don't take care of the problem uh, that the grace of God in their life fails them. That's when you get into issues. And that's when you get an attitude towards something or somebody that gets so dominating into your life that it it, it attaches itself to every other thing in your world. And, uh, you know, I've, we've, I've had people in my ministry that, and usually, honestly, uh, in every case that I can think of, the bitterness where it stemmed from was something that was so stupid that could have been fixed in no time at all without any real effort. But it's the, it's the failure of grace in their life. And you've got to see that. And it's, a, it's not a failure of the grace of God as far as you getting saved, but it's a failure of the grace of God and you're being able to exercise grace in other circumstances and and people. Hey, trust me, I'll tell you, people will drive you nuts. There's no question about it. Uh, But like somebody said one time, people can't drive you crazy unless you give them the keys. And, and, And that's, you know, that is so true. And you just don't allow that, you don't go there. The grace of God in our lives, you know, when God gave us grace, I know he gave it by, by measure. I understand that. But uh, you have the ability as you develop to get all of the grace that, that God has. 
and people fail to do that. And grace not failing in your life is simply just cutting everybody else the same slack that God gave you. And, and, and most people fail in that. And, uh, you know, they, they, they would die and have a heart attack if they thought God was going to treat them the way that we treat other people. But that's, that's what we do. And it comes down to one simple little thing. Grace failed in your life. It didn't fail for you to get saved, but it failed for you to giving the grace that you got saved by to somebody else. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, that is, the, that is the root problem of every aspect of our lives. But here, they're talking about the root of bitterness. And, I, and, and notice it says here that uh, thereby many be defiled. It would be okay, I guess, not really, but it would be okay if bitterness just affected you. But it doesn't. It affects everybody around you. Because your bitterness toward something or somebody or whatever, in time it will attach itself to everything in your life. And it will affect you. And it will be the blowout of grace in your life in in every aspect. And it becomes a real problem. And uh, I've known people that... um, that they had a problem in a, in a church someplace with somebody or some pastor or whatever, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, and they never got past it. And they never got past it because grace failed them. They didn't have the grace to deal with something. They didn't have the, you know, sometimes it takes grace just to let something go. I mean, sometimes somebody will do something to you or say something to you and you know, on my end, the first thing I think of is the fact, well, maybe they're having a bad day. You know, maybe something didn't go right. But so many of God's people have to absolutely, right out of the chute, take it personal. And that is a very bad situation to be. That just shows your own inability to be able to deal with things. And, um, you know, my whole life, probably to a fault, has been giving people the benefit of the doubt. But I'd rather give the benefit of the adult and get hosed on it than not give them the benefit of the adult and not do what's right with it. Uh, you know, and there again, uh, I just go back to the Lord Jesus. The Lord gave me the benefit of the doubt, and I didn't do what was right after he gave me the benefit of the doubt many times. But that's beside the point. That's real grace. And we have to be stewards of that grace. And being a stewardship of grace means that you give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't jump to conclusions. I I used to do that, and I learned very quickly that, and I learned by bad experiences, by somebody coming and telling me something about this person and that person. And then when I went to that person, um, you know, I found out that that was not really the case. The person that told me that had an attitude toward that person, so they were coloring it and wanted to make that person look bad. So I go charging in and find out that that really wasn't the circumstance. And so I, I you know, you, you, you got to come to the place where grace is giving people the benefit of the doubt. And if you have to deal with something, make sure you're not dealing with it on something somebody else told you. Make sure that you have the facts and that you have the, the bottom line on your side and then, you, you, you know, you go from there. But most God's people can't do that. And, uh, you know, I've had people in my ministry that were, that I, that I thought were really good people. I mean, uh, you know, they, uh, but one little thing like bitterness will take you out of it. And, uh, and I've seen them carry that bitterness around 
you know, for 20, 30 years. Takes them out of church, takes them out of ministry. And, you know, bitterness, actually, bitterness is like you drinking poison and then thinking that it's going to kill your enemy. And uh, it's just, it's going to kill you. And it, it, in time, and you'll see it here, it taints everything at it. And that's why he's saying there that many be defiled because it, it attaches itself to other people. Uh, I've seen, you know, you could be working with somebody and you have an attitude about something or somebody or have a bitterness in your heart. And uh, as that bitterness develops, you know, it, it's, it, it can't help self-spread. It's spread into your kids. I mean, I've seen parents have a problem that didn't do what was right and uh, they get bitter about something, and you, five years later, ten years later, their kids are the same way. And that's because many are defiled. But it all comes back to the failure of the grace of God in your life and my life, giving people the ability, not thinking that people have to live in the box that you create for them and, and getting upset when they don't. Not jumping to conclusions and, and coming to the place. Like I said, I've done that myself many, many times. I don't do it anymore. But I had to learn the hard way. And uh, it's a thing where I realize, and I just keep going back to the fact that when I look at somebody, no matter what they're struggling with, you know, I try to put themselves where I was struggling and how God looked at me. And if God would treated me like I've treated people, then I'd be in bad shape. But it's okay, you see, because we're, we're like to pick and choose. It's all right for me to take the grace of God and thank God for it and be happy about it, but it's something else when I get to get that grace to somebody that I don't really like or care for or whatever the case, or some situation. And, uh, you know, I've seen people leave churches and they were upset and, 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 and bitterness over things. And uh, they carry that around with them forever. And it's a, it's a very a sad, a sad state of affairs. And so he says in verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fall, uh, fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, and thereby uh, defile uh, many be defiled. Now, the other key word there is the word root. And, uh, you know, the root is where something begins to grow. We all know that. And um, we know now from 15 that the root here. Uh, of bitterness, which is also the root of any problem we're going to have, is the failure of the grace of God. I mean, that's very clear now. But I, over the years, you know, as I looked at people and I dealt with situations with people, um, I, I, I just jotted down, um, you know, seven or eight characteristics of, of, of what I would call the roots of bitterness. And, um, you know, and it... I, I just watched this over the years with people, um, compared it to the past, a passage here, and maybe somebody else has another passage, but this is my definitive passage on bitterness right here because it, it deals with so much aspect of it. And the first thing that I, I wrote down was the fact that, you know, when you think about roots, um, they grow under the surface. And that's a, that's a matter of uh, that's a matter of the fact that we don't follow the biblical protocol. You have a problem with somebody, you go to that person. And uh, you don't sit there and suspect that the person has a problem with you until you go find out if they do or not. You, you, you can't leave things to your own mind to figure out without getting definite biblical answers for it because the devil will have a heyday with that. 
And so people, you know, people will start to have an attitude toward the church, the attitude toward a message maybe, an attitude toward somebody that they think did them wrong. And, and so what happens is they, they keep it inside. And that is the worst thing that you could do. Because when you keep it inside, it just, it just comes to the place where it's under the surface. And at that point, you know, you're, you're, you're stuck because of the fact that uh, it's not getting dealt with. And the longer you allow something not to get fixed or dealt, the worse it's going to be. It is not, there isn't one thing in our life uh, as a Christian that's going to fix itself. You have to go to the principles to fix it. And so the first thing I put down there is that it grows under the surface. The second thing I put down there is it grows best in darkness. And once you keep it under the surface and you take it out of the light of the Word of God, then you're in darkness with it. And uh, it, it'll, grow, it'll grow best in darkness because uh, that, it, the light uh, is it, not, it's not consistent with the light. So it's going to grow best uh, in the darkness. And, uh, and then a root, the third thing, a root will grow best in dirt. Uh, and that is a picture of the flesh. And so the, when you have the failure of the grace of God in your life, I don't care how many days a week you go to church. When you, I mean, there's people in church every Sunday all across this country who, is, who are, have got as many problems as you get, and they're not going to get them fixed. And it's because that the, where the roots are, where the roots are. We talk about, you know, us as Baptists and being Bible-believing Christians, and I talk about the roots of Christianity. That's where it started. And you've got to go back and see the roots. You can't understand where you're at now till you go back and see your roots. And you can't fix your problem, whatever it may be, till you go back to the root of it. And, uh, and the root will be, no matter what it is, a failure of the grace of God, you know, in, in your life. And so it grows best in dirt, flesh. And uh, then the fourth thing, that uh, the more contamination you give it, the better it grows. You take a, a tree or a plant or whatever, when you put it in the ground, then you fertilize it. Fertilize it, fertilizer is, you know, waste material from animals, humans, whatever. And it's a thing where um, it's, it, 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 that helps it grow. So the more contamination you get to it by not going back to the root issue, then the worse that it's going to get. And then the eighth thing is, if, or the next thing, or fifth thing is, is that it grows swiftly. I mean, you can, put a, you can put a seed in the ground and, you know, three or four days later, there's a little sprout coming up. And that sprout you see on top has roots going down. And it's a thing where, you know, it grows, it grows pretty quick. And, uh, and not only does it grow quick, but the next thing is that it grows stronger every day. It, it doesn't stay dormant. The stronger, the longer it grows, the stronger it gets. You take a little piece of corn, man, just a kernel, and put it in the ground. Six months later, you got a stock of corn that, uh, you know, is six feet high. And it's a thing where you see it up there, but the roots go down deep. And, uh, you know, they, 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 it goes stronger. And then the, the next thing, as I said, it grows deeper. It goes down deep as far as it goes up. And uh, most people don't see that. Bitterness may show on the outside, but boy, the depth of that bitterness only gets stronger 
as the, you let it go and the older you get because it will, it will color everything in your life. And then the eighth thing <clears throat> that is in time, uh, it will attach it, it will attach to everything in its path. I remember <clears throat> back in Ohio, my old house was a very old house and <clears throat> we'd have the sewer would back up about at least once a year. And I'd have to bring the guy down with his big metal snake, you know, and he'd put it down the, down the sewer pipe and he'd go all the way out to the street. And every time, my problem was, is that when he'd bring that thing out, there would be a casement of, of tree roots that actually had gotten through the pipes. They grow through pipes. They'll grow through rocks. They'll grow through your walls. They'll grow through, they'll grow through, they'll attach themselves to anything that's in its path. And the more they spread out, you know, the more, um, the more they attach it to. And uh, it's a thing where <clears throat> that's what bitterness does. In time, it will attach itself to every aspect of your life. And, um, and it, again, the answer is so simple. It just goes back to grace, giving people the grace of God that God gave us. And it goes from there. You know, and it takes a while, even though it does grow swiftly, it takes a while. You know, you take a tree and you, you plant it in your, your, your front yard. You probably got, I don't know, what, two or three years that you can come and, and you, can, you can root that tree up and get it out without a problem. You give that tree 20 years and those roots will go everywhere. They'll go through your foundation. They'll go through your septic system. They'll go through rocks. They'll go through solid limestone. They'll go through everything. You see these tree guys driving around with these big trucks that's got, <clears throat> on the back of them, that's got one of these huge big scoops with two teeth on it that come down this way. That's what they have to use if they're to cut the tree off at ground level. And then if they're going to get the tree out, that's what they use to to chomp down underneath those roots and then, and then pull them out. But, you know, it's a thing where that's, that's a very, very, very detailed process. And uh, it's a thing where it's, it's something that once those roots get down deep, the deeper they get, the harder it is to get out of your life. But that's true of anything, really. Uh, and that's why it all goes back, no matter what our issues are, whatever problems we struggle with, it always goes back to the failure of the grace of God in our life, that uh, we don't exercise the grace. Uh, and many times, <clears throat> the reason why we don't exercise the grace is because we never developed it in the first place. You know, we talked about a couple of weeks ago that God gives you at salvation uh, grace and faith by measure. And it's a thing where, you know, you, you take that and you, you know, you develop that and you that is where you become a steward of the manifold grace of God. And, uh, you know, your faith grows, your grace grows, and then you learn the different aspects of grace. Grace, you know, we always give it the standard, and I get it, the standard definition that grace is the, you know, grace is the, um, you know, is the uh, unmerited favor with God. And that, you know, and that is the, that is the talking points definition for it. But there's so many aspects to grace. And, you know, grace is manifold, as it, as it says. And it's a thing where, you know, you have to be stewards of every one of those. And there's so many different aspects. There's a grace that I understand what God did for me. There's a grace that I give the others. There's a grace in giving. There's a grace in every aspect because it all goes back 
no matter where we go in our Christian life, what we try to do, it all goes back to one thing, the grace that God gave us. We are to develop that and then give that grace to, to other people. That keeps us from getting an attitude. It keeps us from getting our feelings hurt. It keeps us from getting, you know, to the point where, you know, that uh, we, we, just, we, we just get out of whack with things. You, it, understanding and, and having a stewardship of grace will be one of the greatest aspects of the Christian life because it balances everything out in every circumstance. When I can't figure it out, when I think I've been done wrong, when this or that, the first thing that pops in my mind is how many things I did wrong to God and he still gave me grace. Give others grace. Give them grace even when they don't do what's right. You know why? Because God gave us grace when we didn't do what's right. And that's the line you follow. And if you follow that, your life is going to be much less complicated than than, um, you know, than, than, than the Christian life can be. So, you know, this is my definitive passage on, on bitterness because it's so true. And I, you know, I've seen in my years so, so, so many, many people fall into this aspect of where the grace of God has failed them. And, and, and they're not, you know, in many cases, they're not bad people. I mean, you get people that are terrible people, I mean, and they do terrible things. I get that. But you're going to have a lot of people who are good people that are very nice people. But in this aspect, they fail. So they let things get to them, and uh, they wind up, you know, getting bitter over things, having an attitude over things that they carry around for years and years and years and years and years. I can actually honestly say before God, I, 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 I'm not bitter about anything. I, I don't get bitter about anything. I just take everything on a daily stride and I realize that, uh, you know, I, I know which way the wind blows in life and there's going to be things that don't go my way. And I can choose either to let that, there's going to be things that people do to you that are totally wrong. And you can carry that around, hate that person, wish God would kill that person, wish God would do all kinds of things to that person. And you know what? I got news for you. He's, he, he might do that to you, but he's not going to do that to them. And it's a thing where, you know, I, I, my, I got too much to do for God that I let anything that anybody's done to me, whether I deserved it or not, is beside the point, is to let, that, let the grace that God has given me be overshadowed by, by something that turns into bitterness for me, that I just, I'm consumed with this person, that I'm consumed with what he did to me, or I'm consumed with what uh, they, they said about me, or I'm consumed about how this turned out when, it, when, I, when I got the short end of the stick. You know what? Hey, Jesus Christ got the short end of the stick for me on the cross, so if I got to take the short end of the stick for him, I'm okay with that. But that's grace, you see. That's grace. That's just realizing that life is what it is. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to allow, uh, one, it to stop me. Two, I am not going to allow it to defile somebody else. So it is what it is. And then he says in verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Uh, for you know how that afterwards, when he should have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, 
though he sought it carefully with tears. Now, he uses Esau as an example because Esau is a good example of bitterness. And I want you to know that Esau had a problem with Jacob all the rest of his life. In fact, it's so bad that the you talk about the filing many, the Edomites, Esau, turned against the nation of Israel as a nation. We saw it in the book of Obadiah a couple of weeks ago. Now, that's a great example of somebody being bitter towards somebody and then it defiling many. It just didn't stay with Esau. I guarantee you, as Esau began and the Edomites began to flourish, Esau, like most of God's people, shot his mouth off about the injustices that he had experienced at his brother. I promise you. And it tainted the whole Edomite nation to the point that they attack the Jews against them and try to hurt them when the captivity comes, and they're going to go against them at the, uh, at this, at this, with the Antichrist at the second coming. If you look in the Middle East, and of course you can't, you can't figure it out now because it's all big mess over there, but if you, if, I guarantee you, one of the main reasons for the, for the Middle East hatred for the nation of Israel uh, is the fact that, uh, you know, of, of Esau and, and Jacob. And uh, it also goes back to, you know, uh, uh, Abraham and uh, Ishmael. Those two boys got bitter. And they didn't have to. God told Ishmael, hey, if you do what's right, you may not get everything that, that, uh, uh, that Isaac is going to get, but I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you. But he was bitter, see? And Esau could have had the blessings of God uh, in a secondary sense because he gave up the uh, birthright and the blessing. He could have had a good relationship with God and God's people but he chose to be bitter about it. And, uh, and, and here's another problem. And, uh, you know, we like, to blame, <clears throat> we like to blame our problems on everybody else. But in Esau's case, it says here that uh, uh, for one more so of bread, he sold his birthright. Esau had the right to the blessing and the birthright. Now, the blessing and the birthright are two different things, but they are connected. The blessing had to go with the fact that he would have inherited the kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament and carried it through. <coughs> the birthright is the fact that he gets a double portion because he's the firstborn of the father's inheritance, and then he has a right to be in the line of Christ. Now, we go back and see that Esau's character was such that he cared nothing about the blessing or the birthright. Esau is a picture, he's a picture uh, of, well, verse 16, he's a profane person, and he looked at the things of this world, and if you would go back and look at the study, you know, and it's a thing where, <coughs> you know, he, uh, you know, he, 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 he cares nothing about the things of God. He's a man of the world. And uh, I know Jacob deceived him, and that was Jacob's fault, and Jacob didn't have to do that, but because uh, he would have lost it anyhow, but it's just the way life goes. But Esau, Esau chose the world over what God had for him. And then when God took it away from him and gave it to Jacob, who shouldn't have got it anyhow because he's not the firstborn, but he got it because of Esau doing what he did, 
then Esau got upset with Jacob, and he was bitter toward him. He never realized that the only reason Jacob got what he wanted or he had was the fact that he gave it up for a morsel of meat. He, tra- he traded everything that God had for him. Boy, well, I've seen God's people do this. He, tra- he traded every, and boy, when you go out and you want to critique the blessing and the birthright, all the stuff that went along with it, he traded that, he traded that for a bowl of chili. And then got upset because of the fact that God took it away from him and gave it to his brother. Boy, if that isn't God's people. God's people don't do what's right, what they should. The grace of God fails in their life. So God takes the blessings that he would have for them and gives them to somebody else, and they get upset about it. It's just the way that it works. It's just the way that it works. And Esau is a great example of a Christian. He's a great example. The Bible tells you over there that, uh, that he's righteous. He's, he's a, he, he went to heaven. <clears throat> but I'll tell you what, he's a picture of a worldly Christian who gets bitter because the grace of God in his life <clears throat> failed him. And he, it was by his own choosing. He decided that the things of this world were more important than the things of God. And then when God took them from him, gave them to somebody else, he got bitter. He developed that bitterness. It spread to his intermediate family. It spread to his nation. <clears throat> and that's why they're the only nation in the whole Bible that has a book specifically written against them, the book of Obadiah, because of their bitterness toward the nation of Israel. And they're going to get judged for it at the second coming of Christ. It's, it's unbelievable. And so these are the examples that he gives us. And he's obviously, he's making the direct reference to the nation of Israel because they're bitter. They got an attitude toward God because they can't figure out they're supposed to be God's chosen people and they can't get it while they're going through the suffering that they've went through for the last 2,000 years and yet they're going to go through the greatest time in the history of the world, the tribulation, and through that they're going to figure it out and find God. But they got an attitude, and they're bitter. They, 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 they don't understand why they're God's people. But there were Jews that survived the concentration camps that I've heard their testimonies about going through the camps, and they just go on and on and on that they could not understand why God would allow this to happen to, if they were truly his people. They don't get it. And it's developed an attitude of bitterness. And they're just like Esau. They sold their birthright when they crucified Christ on the cross. Now, they get it back, but it's a thing where it's, a boy, the price that they paid for it. And uh, to them, the, the more bitter you get, the less you see things clearly in the Bible because it starts to overtake everything. And the example for that, nation of Israel and Esau. It just didn't stop with him. It went into his family and it went into his nation. And then God has to come down and judge the nation. He says in verse 17, For ye know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Uh, You see, that's the reality check. For me, and I don't know that this is the reference to this, but to me it is. I can't speak for you. To me, 
when it says there, for you know how that afterwards when he should have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. He found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now, to me, personally, that's the judgment seat of Christ. That's God's people standing in the judgment seat of Christ, fully realizing now what Christ did for them, fully realizing now uh, what they could have found out now in the Bible, but they won't, fully realizing now what God had for them to do, and realizing how that they never fulfilled it. They made every bad choice in life. They married the wrong person. They, they did this wrong. They did that wrong. They got in every kind of mess that they could, just like Esau did. At the moment, you know, and, I, and I, I don't, we don't want to go back to it this morning to take too much time, but <clears throat> I love Esau when he's coming back in and he is so hungry and weak. That Jacob says, you know, Jacob makes the food, and then Esau says, you know, give me some of that. And Jacob, being a real good Jew, doesn't give him anything away. He says, what do you give me for it? And, and he, he says this. This is the classic words out of Esau's mouth that is the classic words out of every child of God's mouth I ever met in my life that's just like Esau. You know what he said? He says, give me this, give me this food uh, he said, basically, uh, what, what good is the birthright and the blessing to me? Give me this food for I'm at the point of death. That's what he said. Now, you analyze that statement. He missed one meal and he's at the point of death. One meal and he's looking all that God had for him and a pot of chili and he trades it. That is God's people today. Your bowl of chili is everything that you've got in this world that you're not willing to let go of. And you trade that. You trade that for all, give away all that God had for you. And at the judgment seat of Christ, I, I promise you, there's a reason why it's called the terror of the Lord. And we're going to stand there at the judgment seat of Christ, brother, and for the first time, now that you're going to have the mind of Christ, which you have on the table before you, but you don't bother to get into it, not you guys. You have the mind of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God, which will lead and guide you into all truth that you do nothing with. And now, you know, for the first time in your life, you're going to be there in a glorified body, be the Holy Spirit of God, be Christ, be the Word of God. You're going to know everything there is. And for the first time in your life, you're going to understand in crystal clarity everything that God did on the cross everything he wanted for you, everything you did in opposition to that, and everything in God's plan and every blessing he had for you. And there are going to be many of God's people who are going to wind up with absolutely nothing. And I promise you, there are going to be people at the judgment seat of Christ begging God for just five minutes to go back down and to do something for him. And they ain't going to get it. There'll be tears at the judgment seat of Christ, brother. And it's because we're going to realize that the greatest failure in our life was not a failure to witness for God. It wasn't a failure to read the Bible. It wasn't a failure to, to, uh, to go to church. It wasn't a failure to get in ministry. It wasn't a failure to raise your kids right. It wasn't a failure. To, it was the failure of the grace of God in your life. End of story. Rest of it will take care of itself. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where if you get the grace of God right in your life, then uh, it, it fixed you for your salvation. It'll fix you in every issue of life if you don't fail in it.
and that's Esau. It failed. Esau blamed his brother for the rest of his life. And I'm not saying that Jacob always did what was right, and I'm not saying that Jacob should have done that. Esau would have forfeited just because of who he was. But it just goes to show you that Jacob didn't miss a trick, and he saw an opportunity, and he took advantage of it, right or wrong. But Esau never forgot him for it and hated him for it. And they have problems the rest of their lives that goes into the families and goes into their nations, all because of the root of business and all because... Esau couldn't see the real problem. The real problem was Esau. The grace of God failed him. He, he, he looked at what God had for him, and he looked at a bowl of chili, and he said, the bowl of chili is more important to me because I missed one meal and I'm going to die. That is, the world, that is God's people's view of the world versus God and what he has for them. One little thing versus everything that God had, and he took the one little thing the world had. That's God's people. And it, it, once he did it, then he realized it later when the, when the time of the blessing came, then, you know, the bowl of chili had long been digested. And he realizes now how stupid it was. But he couldn't get it back. That, you know, it's a thing where... <clears throat> now, I have been asked the question, well, could not have God given him something else and, and made it right? Yeah. I mean, if you go back to your Bible, you'll find that everybody who screwed up, God made an alternative way for them to get okay. What do you say to Cain? When Cain was upset because he didn't, he didn't receive the, God didn't have respect. What did, what did God say to him? You know what he said? He says, Cain, why are you upset? Go get the right offering and I'll accept it. End of story. But Cain was bitter. He was bitter. We know what happened to him. Yeah, he didn't want to get the right offering. And then so you see that in in Ishmael. He told Ishmael, he says, hey, I'll make you a great nation. You're not going to be the promised seed, but I will make you the great nation that you need. And he didn't do it. And, and God would have God would have given God would have given Esau something here. He'd have taken, he went out and got the blessing. He went out and got the birthright back. But God would have made sure, but he didn't do it. And even though he sought it with tears, the bottom line is here, he never got past his bitterness. He never got past his bitterness. Say, how do you know that? Look at the nation he produces. I mean, it's just that simple. These are great lessons. And they're great lessons for the nation of Israel, and that's the primary application here. But man, you can't miss the practical side of this thing for, for every one of us. I mean, this is it's incredible stuff. And then he says in verse 18, and boy, this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible, for you're not come unto the mount that might be touched uh, and that burn with fire, nor the blackness and the darkness of tempest. Uh, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice uh, they that heard entreated uh, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. And of course, now he's going to talk about uh, the two Mount Zions in the Bible. And, you know, we know that Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion and uh, in that area. And, uh, we know also that there's a spiritual Mount Zion. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14, talks about spiritual Mount Zion on the sides of the north, up in heaven. So not only is 
is Jerusalem, the city of God, not Rome, the city of God, uh, uh, amount of, uh, 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 I hear saying on Mount Zion, but spiritually, heaven is built on it too. And maybe the new Jerusalem. Maybe, I'm not sure how that all works. But the bottom line is there's two Mount Zion. There's a physical one and there's a spiritual one. And what he's doing here, he's saying the mount that might be touched uh, and burned with fire and the blackness and the darkness and the tempest, that's the, that's the one on earth. That's the one that when Moses went up to. Uh, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words. Now this will be the, the sounds of the trumpet will be back there in Exodus chapter 19 where God is on uh, Sinai and he comes down and, uh, you know, at the voice of a trumpet louder and louder. And it's a picture of the post-tribulation rapture. And of course, uh, if you're reading this and you're trying to figure out a context, here again, the next verse um, is one of those key words for they could not endure. There it is. So we need to mark that, endure, that tribulation. That's the Jew, Matthew chapter 25. That which was commanded, and so much uh, as a beast toucheth a mountain, it shall stone or thrust through with a dart. And uh, this is, uh, you know, this is, this is Mount Zion on earth. And Mount Zion on earth, which is found in Psalm 48 two, is a, is a literal picture of the one up in heaven. And uh, Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion on the earth, New Jerusalem uh, built on the heavenly one. Uh, and so uh, he says here, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And this is where Moses goes up to Mount Zion. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, uh, it, it's a thing where it's, uh, it's a very terrible time. If you go back to Exodus 19, it's dark, there's lightning, there's thundering. Uh, it's all a picture of the second coming of Christ back there as it is here. Uh, but this is here showing the Jew that there's two Mount Zions. There's the physical one and then there's the spiritual. But he's showing us too because God's people have no clue of it today. And, uh, you know, a mountain is shaped like a pyramid and we've been through it many, many times. Uh, you know, the universe is likened to a pyramid with no capstone on it. And, um, you know, the capstone is going to be New Jerusalem. And that's why he says the sides of the north. It has sides, but at this point it has no top. It's where God's throne is. And that is the spiritual Mount Zion. And the universe, as we know it, shaped like a pyramid or a mountain, is the uh, spiritual picture of the one that God put as the pattern on earth, uh, the physical Mount Zion. And so you, you, uh, you, know, you, you, you see what he's saying here. He says in verse 22, but you are come unto the Mount Zion and the, the difference between Zion and in the Old Testament with a Z, Zion is going from the Hebrew to English to the Greek to the English. So that's the difference there. It's like the word Noah, you know, or Jeremiah. Uh, they're spelled differently in the New Testament than they are, but they're the same person. But, you're, uh, but ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God of the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now that would seem to suggest that the spiritual Mount Zion, the top of that mountain, is going to be New Jerusalem, <coughs> which 
we know Revelation 20, 21 says, come down out of heaven, or 21, 22, come down out of heaven. So, um, you know, to the general assembly, uh, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and God will judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, it's a thing where, um, it's a thing where what he's saying here is that uh, the, the church of the firstborn, that is our church. That is the body of Christ. And we are the church of the firstborn. Um, Christ is called the firstborn of many brethren. Uh, he's the first man born uh, with a the new spirit, and then you and I are born again after that. But we are the church of the firstborn, uh, which are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all and the spirits of just men uh, made perfect. So what you have here is, he's, he's, he, again, he's comparing to the nation of Israel <coughs> what is the old and, and what is the new. And then he says in verse 24, making the direct reference now, <coughs> and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and of the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things, uh, than that of Abel. And of course, Abel was the blood of sheep. Now here he's talking about the new covenant, and this is, we looked at this in Hebrews chapter 9. This is the new covenant that he's going to make with the nation of Israel in the millennium. So he's showing the Jew here, as he comes down through this, um, all the different aspects that he is not to be bitter, that uh, don't let the grace of God fail him, that, uh, that uh, they went to the literal mountain in the Old Testament, Exodus 19, but there's a spiritual Mount Zion from which the church of the firstborn is going to be connected to. And uh, he's relating the Old Testament back to the New Testament. And then he's showing that there is a better way. And this is the theme, uh, you know, this is the theme of, uh, of the book of Hebrews in verse 24. The better way is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And, uh, you know, back in the Old Testament, they had the covenant that was God was given to Abraham, and that was mediated by the priest and by uh, the Old Testament law. But when Christ came, he fulfilled the law, did away with the priesthood, and now uh, Christ as the high priest is the mediator. And he's the mediator uh, of the new covenant, in this case, uh, to the nation of Israel. Bible says we saw Thursday night, I think it was, or maybe it was Thursday night before, that uh, he's a mediator between man and God in an unsaved sense. He's, he's an unsaved man's mediator, but he's Israel's mediator too here of the new covenant. Uh, See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, how much more shall we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven? And of course, when he speaketh from heaven, now doctrinally, this will be at some point in the tribulation period in the last three and a half years. At some point, <coughs> the Lord appears to the nation of Israel and he speaks to them. This is typified by Paul's conversion. Paul says that he's a Jew born out of due season. Paul in, in type is a picture of the Jew and uh, saved out of the tribulation period. And God appeared to him on, on the road, spoke to him, and then he followed God from that point. 
And at some point in the tribulation period, and you see this in different places, but it's not never nailed down exactly. Uh, the best I can give you, it has to be someplace. I know it's in the last three and a half years. It has to be someplace uh, in that time period, uh, along with Moses and Elijah. If you remember an amount of transfiguration, when God is transfigured before them, Moses and Elijah are standing there with him. If you go back in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses that are standing before the Lord of the whole earth. So most likely he speaks to them when they, he reveals himself to them at some point in the tribulation. I would say, I would say, just based on the unfolding events, the Jew gets a pass the first three and a half years and everything is peace and safety and they get, you know, they get... Uh, uh, get deceived, and then what happens is, is that in the beginning of the third, uh, the second half, someplace in there, then that's when the abomination of desolations takes place, and the antichrist comes down to destroy Jerusalem, and this is where they flee Matthew twenty-five and twenty-four into the wilderness. It's probably at that point, when they're in the wilderness, that this is where God reveals himself and then gives them Moses and Elijah and then they, they lead them from that point on. That's what the doctrinal reference is to here. And it says, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, that would be in the Old Testament, um, much more shall we not, uh, not we escape uh, if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. And of course, that'll be um, the word of God in reference to the Lord revealing himself from that. Now, you know, you can see where if you're a guy who teaches that Hebrews is for Christians, Jewish Christians, it's one of these places that you just can't get anything out of the church directly. I mean, that means, I mean, other than understanding what's unfolding here, like I gave you, tribulation period, there's nothing directly to me here. None of this means anything to me in my salvation or my relationship with God. But it does give me an overall understanding how God's going to deal with the nation of Israel that, that I need to know. And then in verse 26, uh, I, I think one of the great, uh, one, of the great uh, one of the great verses here, and he says in verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, uh, Old Testament, but now he hath a promise saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And now that's doctrinally the second coming of Christ. There's no question about that. But uh, look what he says. Verse 27, and this word yet once more signifieth and uh, the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now, <clears throat> doctrinally, this is all the tribulation period, second coming of Christ, and the thing that cannot be shaken is the kingdom of God that God's going to establish. But notice the connection to, uh, the, to the word of God. And, uh, and the promises of the Word of God. And what he, you know, there's a great inspirational in these two verses. And these are two great verses for me personally. And I, again, I cannot speak for you. What he's saying here, if you want to put this into your world and my world, is that in the world that we live in, 
earthly things will get shaken to show you the stable things in the Word of God. I'm going to say it again. Earthly things will get shaken and will point and show you the stable things of what God says from heaven in the book. Now, I, 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 you know, I, I was talking to Joe and Herb this week. You know, we get talking preacher stuff, church to church to church. And, you know, both of them feel the same way I do about it. And, and I, I told them, we were just talking about it. You know, I, I told them that, that as far as I am concerned, and this is my own personal deal. I'm not, this is not a doctrinal thing. This is, it's based on this verse, but this is, this is my deal. I told both of them, and they both agreed, that I think that uh, the, the coronavirus, the, the, what, we are, what we're experiencing, what we have experienced for the last year, personally, I, I think it was the greatest thing that ever hit Christianity. And, um, you know, and there's a lot of people that won't agree with that, and, and that's fine. It's a free country. But I am telling you this, based on that verse, you know what God did? God took the things of this world and shook it up but he would show you with the book. And, and that's what this church did. You, I, I know sometimes you think I'm just some crazy old hoot up here, you know, that just flies by the seat of his pants. And, and, uh, but, but, uh, and that's true, most cases. That, you know. <laughs> but the, the bottom line is, you know, when I looked at the coronavirus and I looked what was coming and what it had hit us, this was the verse that I operated on. Now, you know, I don't get up and always say, okay, this is why I'm doing this. I, I, I preached it to you. I told you, you know, opportunities and all those things. But, you know, when you're in the military, uh, the guy that's in charge doesn't always have to explain his orders to you. Amen. I mean, he says, we're going to take this hill. He doesn't sit down and have to f- and explain to you why we're going to take it. You follow orders. <clears throat> and in Christianity, I grew up, I followed orders. There was lots of things that Mel did that, uh, that I didn't understand why he did it, but I just realized that he knew more about it than I did, and if that's the way he wanted it, my job wasn't the question, and my job was just to salute him and get in line and, and tack the hill. But it's a thing where <clears throat> God will take, because we get so, we get so institutionalized to the world. You know, you take a guy that goes to prison for 30 years and he spends 30 hard years in prison and his parole comes up. He doesn't want to get out of prison. He's now become institutionalized to it. It's all he's known. And you, you uh, probably everybody has seen it. It's a great movie. Everybody ought to watch it. Uh, uh, Shankshaw Redemption. Yeah, Shankshaw Redemption. Uh, you know, the, 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 the old guy there that, uh, that hung himself, uh, James, uh, who? Yeah, but his real name in the movie, James, uh, and he's one of my favorite actors. I mean, I've watched him all the way back in the 1951 movie, Them, with the big ants. My mom took me to see that. And, uh, James, what is his name? Well, Whitmore, James Whitmore. And uh, he played in that movie. He played in uh, 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 Battleground, where it was a 326th in the Battle of the Bulge. And he, uh, he's, he's a great actor. Uh, and he, I think that was one of his last movies, because he's dead now. But he prayed, played the guy that got out, and he couldn't function. And, and he wound up hanging himself. And then Morgan Freeman got out, 
and he'd been in about 30, almost 40 years. He got out, and he can't function. He got a job at a shopping center, and he's asking the guy if he can calls him boss, which he did in prison, can I take a bathroom break? And the guy comes over and says, you don't have to ask me. But he's asked all, he's been told all his life when he can go to the bathroom. He's looking in a pawn shop and he wants to buy a gun because he figures that he'll go out and commit a crime and they'll send him back to prison again. Guys get institutionalized when they spend years and years and years and years and years in a prison someplace. And I'll tell you something, God's people get institutionalized to the world. You're living it every day. You're working it every day. And if you don't stay in the book and you don't stay close to God and you don't continue to develop yourself, you'll become institutionalized to the world. Now, I'm just telling you, okay? I'm just telling you. God shakes up the physical things of this world to hopefully point you to the stable things in the Word of God. And no greater example of that is, is what we're all going through right now. And, uh, you know, personally, I'm just, you know, my own personal deal. I just, I, I you know, I just, I, I'm not a conspiracy guy in any way, shape, or form. I understand where it all flows and how the wind blows, and I, I get all of that. But I am telling you right now, I know my Bible, and I know that God has judged his people all down through history with other nations and diseases, if you think for a moment that this coronavirus wasn't some biological weapon that, that China wasn't putting together and just crawled out of the box and got loose on the world, you don't know very much about life. I am telling you. There's a design behind this. And I'm telling you right now, God uses things like that to shake the world up. And we're seeing things start to loosen up a little bit. Look, here we are. I mean, but this is so stupid. In Kansas City, which is just a quarter of a mile down the road, if we were having church there, we could all have our masks off, but we'd have to six, sit six feet apart. Here, just a quarter mile up the road, Jackson County, um, you can sit side by side, but you got to wear a mask. It, <laughs> And, and they have the audacity to call it unified government. If that isn't an oxymoron. I mean, you kidding me? Unified? You can't even decide on anything. And, you know, and then you wonder why we don't trust government. It's like the, it's like the CDC. You know, they say now, <clears throat> you know, and then Biden gets up there and says you need to wear a mask. They say you don't have to wear one outside. Biden wears one outside. You know, it's confusing. And then the idiot gets up there and says, we follow the science. No, you don't. You follow your political agenda to get done what you want to get done. That's okay. You know why? Because God's following his agenda to get done what he wants to get done. So he dumped on the church. God's people shook their little world. And I don't care. When we, when it, when it, mark it down. If you got, don't put it in your Bible just yet, but mark it down. When a coronavirus hit, we lost people. Every church did. When the coronavirus has gone away and you don't have to wear a mask and you can do it, we'll lose people. Because people will get, there will be some people, and I don't care, it's okay. 
Now, we're going to meet down here Sunday side by side, and we're going to set it up just like we used to. But upstairs, hey, I'm covering everybody. If some people want to be socially distant, that's fine. We'll have it set up for you. No problem. I want to make everybody happy to the best of my ability. And if that makes you feel safe, hey, I love you. I'm okay with that. I want you to be safe. But I'm telling you right now, five years from now, there will still be people wearing a mask because they're institutionalized to it. And there are some people that, and I don't mean this in a wrong way, any way, shape, or form, and I'm sure they're not really talking about anybody here or anybody even in my church probably because they're all gone. But there will be people, no, no, that's not a bad thing to say. I mean, you know, I mean, come on, don't laugh at me. It's, it's you know, it, 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 go ahead, you can laugh at me. It's all right. But I'm just saying, there will be people who, who will never, 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 never. The mask is their source of comfort. And reality, what the source of comfort should be when God shakes everything up is the book that God gave you, okay? God forbid people across this world who claim to be Christians take more safety in a mask than they do the Word of God, but they do. And, and I'm not any fool to understand why the CDC says one thing and Biden says something else and these people say this. It's the end of the day, guys, it's about controlling you. That's all this is. Now, I'm all for wearing masks, and, but I'll tell you right now, if you think, if you actually think from the medical science to the doctors that I have talked to, that the mask that you're wearing right now is going to keep you from getting it or prevent you from getting it, unless you got one of them MBC, ABC, 95, 6432-6789, it's an illusion in your brain. Now, I'm for it. I got one. Mine's got a Jeep on it. Mine's better than all yours. But now, you see, they started out by saying, wear a mask. And then the same guys that said, wear a mask, said, now you got to wear two masks. Then they told you that if you got vaccinated, you would be absolutely, you know, uh, free. You couldn't get it. Now, people, they get vaccinated and and you still got to wear a mask and you still got to stay six feet apart because now they're saying maybe you can get it. You can't trust anything anybody says except what you've got in here. And God is shaking this world upside down as far as the Christian world. Forget the unsaved world. I mean, the unsaved world is like the Jerry Lewis song, whole lot of shaking going on all the time. But the Christian world, God has shook it up simply because of the fact that he's trying to point people to what is stable. And I love that about God. Now, that is why. I didn't like it, but I follow the rules. At the end of the day, bottom line is this. Most churches folded up. A lot of God's people headed for the woods. I commend the ones that stayed with it. You were cautious. You were good. I realized that some of you had older folks at home. You had to care. Hey, I'm 100% on board with that. I'm good to go. But this church did not fold up its doors and shut the windows. We looked at it as a shaking up but God had stable in his book and he would give us other opportunities. And look what he's done. We have filled the ranks of everybody who's left with all you young guys and gals and couples and moms and dads that have come in. We have filled the ranks. We had, you see, you never, 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 never want to just 
do something for a long time, and then when God shakes things up, you got to look at now what God gives you, and then you got to decide, do I want to go back to doing what we once did for 10 or 15 years, or did God, through this shakeup, take this whole church who stayed with the stuff? Cautious, careful, doing what you're supposed to do, not liking it, but understanding what we got, and instead, God took this whole church up to another level. Your Zoom teams are incredible. I get people all the time. You know, um, Bobby and John, the brothers, they're not here today. Uh, uh, um, You know what I'm talking about. They just came in. Great guys. I guess they were in North Carolina, South Carolina, or someplace down there last week, and they weren't here for church. Obviously, one of them or both of them was witnessing to their friends. They, Monday or Tuesday, I got a call from a lady, a young a lady down there, 30 or some years old. And she told me who she was, and she told me that she was friends with Bobby and John, and that they had been telling her what was going on up there. And she says, and I don't know if this is possible, but is there any way that somebody could disciple me? I said, yeah, Absolutely. Got her hooked up. She's not only going to be a disciple, she's on a prayer Zoom group now. That Zoom thing, what's it called? Lifeline group. I had another guy that, uh, you know, from out in Washington. And, uh, you know, he, his friend's out there, and he called me and wanted to get a King James Bible. So I sent him a King James Bible. And I talked with him on the phone about, you know, discipleship. He called me back and he says, I'd like to be discipled. Could I have somebody to disciple me? Got him hooked up. He's being discipled. And it's a thing where he was going to face back surgery. And he said, I'll do it after my back surgery, which was a couple of weeks ago. Right? A couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And so he, he, he calls me up before his surgery and he says, could you get me hooked up? He says, I want to get some lessons. I want to start looking at it before I go and while I'm off my back. You know, they're out there, folks. I could tell you that story 20 times over. Now, here it comes. We never would have got those people if it wasn't for the shaking that God did. And it wasn't just a shaking. It was this church, you, you, every one of you, enduring the shaking, not liking the shaking. It was a pain in the rear end of the shaking. But we focused on what was stable. With good and shake. Sometimes God will shake things up of the earthly things to show you the heavenly things that are stable. We as a church can't ever lose sight of that. I've told you before and I'm telling you again, the coronavirus right now and what we're experiencing is only the beginning. It's going to get so bad in this next year. They're going to take the goal, the goal, the, the goal is to dismantle everything in this country. Take every liberty that we had. It's going to start with the basic things, and they're going to take the sides off, they're going to take the doors off, the windows off, and then they're going to try to rebuild this country, and probably will, into a socialistic government that moves away from the freedoms that you once had. And that's where it's going. And all the people out there and the Christians and the pastors, they're fighting it, you know. 
um, the, the, the evangelists that used to be evangelists that I knew, now they've all got on the bandwagon of this and they're going around. See, they're not preaching their sugar stick message anymore. Now they're lining everybody up to get into a, a mindset to go against the government. You know, let me tell you something. These pastors who were in here, Joe and Herb, we were talking and, and, and Herb says, he says, let me ask you a question. He says, if you could give your people one verse that would really help them understand what's going on, what verse would it be? And I said, well, I'd have to look it up, but I can quote it to you. It's in the Old Testament. And it's where God said, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan, godless king that busted hell wide open and screaming his lungs out, became God's servant in the Old Testament to judge God's people. And you look at the Democrats and the Republicans and the governments and the Iranians and the Iraqis and everything in the Middle East, they are now God's servant to judge his people because of what we've done with the Word of God. And things are going to be shaken up. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to stay with the things that are real. And all I'm going to do is keep looking for the opportunities, not the obstacles, the opportunities by which God is going to open up <coughs> more doors to us. Because the more shake-up it begins, the more people are going to want to know the truth. <coughs> the more scared they're going to be. Scared people who need Christ cannot be ministered to by scared Christians. Love these two verses. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake the earth only, but heaven also, second coming. And this word, yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. I got a book when the whole world, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. I got a book that no matter how bad he shakes this earth, if we stay with it, we stay in it, we don't get fearful, we understand it. Yes, we're careful. Yes, we don't do dumb things. But at the end of the day, we look at it as where God is going to take it. Because I have a book that stabilizes everything that I need. And then, of course, in verse 28, wherefore, what he just said, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. There it is. You see it again? See where he, you see where he went back to this thing? Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Now, doctrinally, that's the kingdom of heaven, which God establishes that it can't be moved. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's also the kingdom of God because once God establishes it in your heart, it can't be moved unless you hire the movers. And I'm not mad at anybody. Hey, I understand. Uh, you know what? The coronavirus separated the men from the boys. Praise the Lord. As far as I'm concerned, it just got rid of the dead wood and the people that weren't going to get out of the way before the real crap hits the fan. And I know now what I have will stand. And I know now what we have. God's bringing in young men and young ladies and God's bringing in people that will stand through anything. 
And it's a thing where we bring it in moms and dads. We're bringing in people. They're coming in, and they they want to they 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 want something that is real. And in uh, a world that is being shaken, and that's our job. Our job is not to shake with the world. Our job is to be stable and not be moved by anything. Doesn't mean you do something stupid. It doesn't mean you don't follow the rules. I'm not advocating we go up and go against the government. I'm not going to sue Jackson County because Kansas City says one thing and they see something else. I don't care. I don't care. I just know that when the world gets shaken by God, God does it that he may affirm the things that are absolutely rock solid and cannot be moved. And I don't care what happens. I'm not going to get moved. You may get moved. You may move. You may get shattered, busted, broken, shaken. I don't know. I'm not going to be moved. And if that's a problem for somebody, hey, I don't know what to tell you. I'm sticking with the book. It got me this far in my 50 years. It'll get me the rest of the way. And, uh, you know, that's just where it's at. Wherefore, we, Israel, Receiving a kingdom, kingdom of heaven, which cannot be moved, for me inspirationally, kingdom of God. Here it comes. Let us have grace. See? Don't let the grace of God in your life fail. Because you know what it's going to take besides the book to get us through what we're going through right now, as goofy as it may be, and what's coming our way? It's going to take grace. We all better start cutting each other some grace because there's going to be coming a day when all you got is the person next to you that right now you don't care much for. And there may be at some point in time you have to put your hands in their life and their life in your hands. And uh, you know what? The only thing that's going to make it happen is grace. And so they say, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved let us have grace whereby we shall serve God acceptably. Oh, there it is. You see, you can serve God, but it doesn't mean you're serving Him acceptably. A lot of God's people say they're serving God. God just doesn't accept it. Because if it's not a work based on grace and not a work based on the book and what's fixed and what's not shaken, you won't make it. You won't last. We may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Now that verse there, could you see how if you were trying to put this into Christianity directly, you'd have a tough time in that verse? And of course, God being a consuming fire is a reference to uh, the second coming of Christ. Great white throne judgment. Now for you and for me, if you want to put it in a practical way, it'll be the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And that's how it works. So, we will hold up there.